This is the Value Investor Podcast with Tracy Reinick. All things value, all the time. Welcome back, value investors. So it's come to my attention after I mentioned Benjamin Graham and the intelligent investor on a recent podcast that many of you may not even have been around for any of those intelligent investor podcasts where we discuss lessons from the various chapter in the book because it was a couple years ago now that we did those podcasts. So many of you have since found the value investor and you've been listening in, but you missed those podcasts and they're a couple years ago. So you can't even, you know, really find them. It's hard to locate. And it also came to my attention that many of you may not even be aware of who Ben Graham is. Like, who is that guy and why does he matter? Um, So I'm going to devote this podcast to Ben Graham and the intelligent investor and taking a look at it again as a refresher for those of you who did listen to the other podcasts, but it has been a couple of years and those of you who know nothing. So who is Ben Graham? The short explanation is that he's known as the father of value investing, you know, quote unquote father, and is one of the greatest professional investors of all time. And at one time was Warren Buffett's actual teacher, professor, and mentor and boss at one time. So Ben Graham was actually born in 1894. So he is not still with us. He has passed away in the 1970s. But he was born in London. And according to the intelligent investor, uh, he um, moved to New York in 1895 when he was just a year old. His father was apparently a dealer in China dishes and figurines. And they had good life and business when they moved to New York because they had a maid, a cook, and a French governess. But Ben's father died in 1903, and the company or the family uh, struggled after his dad died. So Ben's mom apparently turned the house into a boarding house, and then she borrowed money to trade stocks on margin. So this was all in the early 1900s. And so the stock investing goes back far in Ben Graham's family, obviously. But unfortunately for her, she was wiped out in the crash of 1907. So Ben Graham came from a background of uh, serious money issues and struggles with money. But he won a scholarship to study at Columbia. And graduated second in his class and was offered all these professorship jobs immediately out of school because he was so brilliant. But instead, he decided to go to Wall Street, which wasn't that common back in that day. And he started his own investing firm. So that was going pretty good in the 1920s, the boom, boom years of the 20s, until the crash of 1929 to 1932, which was during the Great Depression, when his funds and his firm lost 70% during that crash. So he wrote it all the way down, but uh, being Ben Graham and a value investor did manage to invest during the recovery years of the 30s and even after that next recession started in like 1937, 
he was still investing during those years and the war years. And from 1936 to 1956, so 20 years, his firm gained 14.7% annually. And that was versus 12.2% for the stock market as a whole. So this was one of the best long-term track records on Wall Street. And he continued on with this kind of streak even after 1956 in the 60s, which was also a bull market time period. So that's where he gets the reputation of being uh, one of the greatest professional investors of all time. So he published several books. One was Security Analysis in 1936, which a lot of people on Wall Street continue to read to this day because it was on how to analyze a stock. And it's kind of dry, though. Um, so uh, just warning, FYI, if you go and you can still buy it. I don't know if it's like out of print now or if Amazon has more recent prints. It's probably still in print. But you can go and, and get it on Amazon and um, check it out. But again, it is still pretty dry. So then he published the first edition of the Intelligent Investor, which is subtitled The Definitive Book on Value Investing in 1949. Now, the current issue, the revised edition, this is the fourth edition now that I have that they have updated, is from like 2005 or 2006. And this version, because it has new chapters with new commentary by Jason Zwig in there, along with Graham's analysis. So the new chapters basically just give some more modern day examples of what Graham was talking about in his chapters so that you're not bored reading about like the 1960s companies <laughs> or things that happened then. You can read a little bit more. Um, but I've said in the past that I believe they're going to update this further because it is a, about 15 or 16 years old now. A lot has happened, including the financial crisis. So it could use an update, which I'm assuming they're probably going to do a fifth edition anytime now. So keep that in mind. But fourth edition is still good and still um, intriguing and you learn a lot. But the thing with, with this is that because it has the extra chapters, it is about 600 pages, which is why I was doing the podcasts on various chapters so that we could go over it so you wouldn't have to sit there and read it all <laughs> because it is a lot. Now, you can just read like a chapter here, a chapter there because they're kind of self-contained in the chapters and that works too. Or you can listen to some of these podcasts I'm going to do again and uh, get some of the best tips out of the book as well. So I'm going to read... Uh, part of the preface to the book that was put out by Warren Buffett when they did this update, because I feel like what he says here kind of encapsulates a lot about Ben Graham and this book. So this is the preface to the fourth edition by Warren Buffett. So he says, quote, I read the first edition of this book early in 1950 when I was 19. I thought then that it was by far the best book about investing ever written. I still think it is. To invest successfully over a lifetime does not require a stratospheric IQ, unusual business insights, or inside information. 
What's needed is a sound intellectual framework for making decisions and the ability to keep emotions from corroding that framework. This book precisely and clearly prescribes the proper framework. You must supply the emotional discipline. Then he goes on to talk about a couple of the, the chapters we should pay special attention to. And he calls the advice invaluable in chapters eight and 20. And I'm gonna talk about those a little bit later in the podcast um, about why he singled out those. So yeah, he. Uh, this is the book that changed his life. He was 19, he's in his 90s now. Um, we don't know if he still like consulted, consults it every once in a while when things are going bad, um, but maybe he does because I know I do. I know I have to get it out. So this brings up the question, how did Graham do it? So Zwig lays it out in uh, one of his introductory chapters to the book. And so I'm gonna go over some of that. And this may seem really basic because that is the genius of the intelligent investor. It is really basic, but we allow our emotions and um, well, basically our emotions to mess us up when we're investing. We don't pick uh, the the best companies always because we are going to get some things wrong. Uh, even Warren Buffett has has made mistakes and gotten things wrong and had to sell and take losses and all of that. So uh, there's that aspect and then there's just the emotional side. And so Ben Graham tries to lay out the framework as Buffett said, so that you can keep your emotions in check. So. Let's uh, jump into what Zwig laid out as the success of Ben Graham. Okay, the first basic lesson is a stock is not just a ticker. You are an owner in the actual business with underlying value. And that's easy to forget now. When you're on the Robinhood app, all you see is that ticker. All you see is the chart. All you see is the trending tickers up at the top. Um, that's all you hear about is the one that's up big or down big. You're not really thinking that much about the actual underlying business. And that if you're a long-term investor and not a trader, then you actually own what is going on there. You own a piece of that. So that's the number one lesson. The second lesson is the stock market swings between bulls and bears. The intelligent investor is a realist who buys when everyone else is bearish and sells when they're bullish. So it is gonna have these swings, but you have to, again, contain your emotions and learn how to handle those swings. The third lesson is the future value of every investment is a function of its present price. The higher the price you pay, the lower your return will be. The fourth lesson is you will be wrong. <laughs> That's an easy one, right? We all get it wrong at some point. So according to Ben Graham, you have to have a quote, margin of safety, unquote. Never overpay, no matter how much you fear you're gonna miss out. And this is important because we're seeing it right now in this post pandemic type of market. Uh, you know, we had the coronavirus sell off, a lot of things spiked way down. Then we had this huge, massive rally. A lot of people missed the rally. So now they fear missing out further in the rally and are jumping in, maybe not at the cheapest prices anymore. 
So Ben Graham would say you have to watch your margin of safety when you are, you know, buying in into something um, that's new. Lesson number five is develop discipline and courage. It will allow you to buy when everyone else is selling. So that's kind of key, right? But right now, every no one is selling or very few. Most people are still buying. So it's these kinds of really strong bull markets that are difficult for value investors because um, it's really hard being on the outside looking in as stocks continue to rally and rise and, um, you know, or you're in like a, uh, out of favor sector like the banks or energy right now. <laughs> energy is still out of favor even with their big rally this year. So those are some some of uh, Zwig's lessons that he pulls out at the beginning to talk about how Ben Graham has done it. Now Buffett again in that preface he cited these two chapters chapter 8 and chapter 20 as those to look at for further advice like basically we should go study these so what are they chapter 8 is called the investor and market fluctuations and chapter 20 is called margin of safety as the central concept of investing so because there's a lot that goes on in both of those chapters i'm gonna have to do separate podcasts on each of those which i think i did a couple of years ago but we're gonna do it again because um we always need a refresher or for people who are new you need to uh, find out what's going on in those two chapters. So instead on this podcast for the rest of it, I'm just gonna look at chapter one uh, because this is the opening chapter and he basically kind of just talks about uh, stock investing, timing, the luck of it all, and um, a lot of it is luck. So sometimes uh, we think it's not because that luck can happen over you know, a decent amount of time period, not just like a year, but 10 years or 20 years. And we think, oh, we found the method now because this has worked for 20 years. But Graham would argue that that's mostly just luck in timing. And so there probably isn't really a strategy behind it. So I took a look at Netflix because it's been the best performing stock of the last 10 years. And uh, it's even surged up to the top of the best performing stocks of the last 30 years through July 2021. So from its IPO in 20 or 2002, so it hasn't been public the whole 30 years since 1991, but since 2002, it still has the best annualized return in the S&P 500 of 37.9% annualized, which is just tremendous. (laughs) It may not sound like that much, but that's every year since 2002 on average. And so it's 47,982%. But when you compound something like that, so if you compound $10,000 investment in that IPO, it's now worth 4.8 million as of July 31st, 2021. So um, if you are interested in those kinds of things about compounding, I urge you to follow Charlie Bellello. He's over at Compound Advisors. He has a newsletter. There's a free freebie newsletter. Plus he has uh, some subscription products. 
but he's all about the power of compounding and he puts out these nice charts, which is where I discovered Netflix has surged up to the top position uh, over the last 30 years as of July 2021 at this 37.9%. So go check out Charlie's data. It's it's pretty eye-opening. So it seems like Netflix is a no-brainer, right? It's worked all these years, but timing is was and is important because um, you had to be in this, right? Throughout the early 2000s when they didn't even have you know, a streaming service yet, they were still sending out the, the red envelope DVDs, which by the way, they actually still do send out. You can still get the DVDs in the mail. Um, but a lot has changed in that business. Um, Blockbuster was still in business when they went IPO and it didn't die um, until years later. And then even with the streaming, they had a lot of other competitors that were streaming first before they did, but they still managed to beat back some of them. And now they have a lot more competitors in the the companies like Apple and Disney. Um, so a lot is now going on in the business that you might not have thought would happen over the course of nearly 20 years. So the timing is important and Ben Graham would argue that it's just kind of luck in, in the timing. So another one um, to think about with the luck and the timing is Microsoft. So they're making new highs again here in 2021 but from 2000, it took them 13 years for those shares to break out after their big dot-com boom highs. So they hit those highs in 2000, the shares sold off, stayed pretty much depressed for 13 years before it resumed making new highs. So that's a long time, 13 long years if you had owned it in, in 2000. So you would have had to have a lot of discipline to hold on, even though by that point, um, Microsoft decided to uh, pay a dividend. So at least you got something for your patients. But all these other stocks uh, were you know, hitting new highs there in 2007. And there were a lot of hot areas. And um, you know, Microsoft was not it. So discipline and courage would have been the name of the game, right? Um, so Graham in this first chapter also talks about how investors should be able to get results that are better than the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So he used the Dow Jones as his barometer because the S&P 500 was uh, fairly new still as like the market indicator when he was writing the books and when he was around. So he used Dow Jones, but you can use any of these major indexes. And he says that unless you hope to add at least 5% after taxes uh, by individual stock investing, so you've got to beat the market by at least 5% after taxes, then you should just buy the averages. But he does give some keys to actually trying to beat it. And so three of his keys are, um, one, thoroughly analyze the company, two, protect yourself against serious losses, which is what we were talking about, the margin of safety, and then three, aspire to be, quote, adequate, not extraordinary in your performance. So you don't have to go for those big winners. You just have to get the steady, the steady gainers, the grinders, as I call it. 
and aspire to be the adequate and then um, hope for the best, basically. Um, Graham said in a 1972 Forbes interview, which is quoted in The Intelligent Investor, he said, quote, ask yourself, if there was no market for these shares, would I be willing to have an investment in this company on these terms? That's his, one of his uh, baseline barometers for whether or not you should buy the stock. So he also said, um, as a reminder again in this first chapter, stocks do well or poorly in the future based on the business. So um, it is all about the business. It's about those earnings and that revenue and what kind of business they're in. Who's managing it? Are they any good at managing it? What's the product? Is it in demand? Is there growth in the future? All of these things are really what drives the stock market, especially we believe here at Zacks, the earnings side of things. Right now, we are at record earnings for the second quarter ever on the S&P 500. So that seems to be driving the stock market, which keeps hitting new all-time highs. So it is really about the fundamentals. It's not about all these other things about what may be in the future or um, you know, uh, just the chart and the momentum and all of that. It's actually about the business. So for the purposes of this podcast, um, I am gonna do a screen for Benjamin Graham Value Stocks. This is a custom screen that's available on Zach's Research Wizard. It's under this folder we have on there, if you have the research wizard called the Gurus, and Ben Graham is certainly one of those. There is one on there for his uh, mentee, Warren Buffett as well, and a few other Gurus too. So I'm not gonna tell you what's in the screen really because it's kind of a complicated screen, um, but there's no PE or PEG or like our basic value fundamentals because Graham did look beyond those things. Um, when he was screening, and he wanted, uh, you know, good cash flows, and so that's in the screen. And uh, there's no Zex rank that I didn't see in there either. So this one is not looking for the Zex rank because it is a little more sophisticated than what we can do on the Zax.com screener. So when I use the screen, 14 stocks passed. And I'm going to pick out five, as I usually do, but a number of them were Chinese companies. So I didn't really want to talk about those because of everything that's going on in China with the regulations and a lot of the stocks have sold off. And I don't feel like we could follow Graham's uh, you know, initial rule of you have to analyze the company thoroughly. So I kept those out. But um, there's still five other interesting companies, a couple that I have not covered on any of the Value Investor podcasts before. Uh, there's only one, actually, I think that I have ever talked about. So let's dive right in and see what they are in this custom screen of Benjamin Graham stocks. So the first one is Nintendo. N-T-D-O-Y is the ticker. It is five letters. N-T-D-O-Y. Um, this stock a screen did not look for PE, but this has a PE of only 15. This is the big market cap gaming company. Year-to-date shares are down 26%. 
but over five years, they're still beating the S&P 500 up 112% versus the S&P up 103. Now, the thing with this one, though, it looks a little bit like a value trap here because I took a look at the revenue and earnings growth, and both of those are expected to be lower this year and next year than 2020, which is looking almost like a kind of a peak year. So maybe that's why the shares are down 26% year to date. I don't follow Nintendo, so I don't know why the shares are so weak, but it's one to keep on your list. If you do like the gaming area, it does pay a dividend yielding 4.4%. So that's pretty juicy for our troubles, right? But um, I would take a look at why the revenue and the earnings are expected to be lower the next couple of years. And um, because that's not what we want. We do want to see some growth there even in a value stack. So that's Nintendo NTDOY. The second stock is Broadmark Realty Capital. Broadmark Realty Capital, B-R-M-K. B as in boy, R, M as in Mary, K. And I I took a look at the chart on this one um, because it's a REIT and I'd never heard of it. And the chart is terrible. (laughs) It's super volatile kind of each day. It trades on decent volume, but it's trading around $10. It doesn't have any momentum right now. Not that we need to, because Ben Graham says, who cares about momentum? What do they do? Why why does the stock chart look terrible? Well, it's a REIT, does pay a big dividend, currently yielding 8%. So a lot of income investors are probably in this. Um, but they are an experienced hard money lender of commercial loans, construction loans, and land loans. They lend to rehabbers, land development. They do bridge loans. They've been in business since 2010. Earnings expected to be up 6.7% this year to $0.80 cents is the estimate. And then 21.9% growth in 2022 at $0.97. Cents. So real estate is hot. People are building and a lot of developers um, looking to, you know, add to their business. So this is probably a, a decent time to want to be in something like this. Now, they, it looks like they're in the finance side of things. They don't actually own the real estate. So that's a little bit different than some of the other REITs where they actually, for instance, own the apartment building. So you're acting more as a landlord here. Here you are acting as the lender to this industry. So over the last year, the shares are up just 4.3%. Year to date, they're up 3.4%. It is the number five strong sell right here. Um, There is one estimate that's been lowered in the last 30 days. So I think that's why it got the number five rank. But remember, that's just a temporary rank and can and will change. Now the shares are still pretty cheap on a PE level because I did look and it's trading at 13 times. So this is kind of interesting, but the chart is really what throws me off unless you're looking for income. And then um, this is maybe one to you know keep on that short list again. So that's Broadmark Realty Capital BRMK. And then the third stock is one we've talked about in the past. So this one will not be a surprise. DR Horton, the home builder. So that fits in with this theme. DHI is the ticker. Still dirt cheap with a PE of just 8.5. And they are expected to see that huge 
uh, earnings growth this year and into next year still. So they only made $6.41 last year only. 641 expected to make 1116 this year up 74 percent and then the next fiscal year up another 14 percent to 1274 so um that's pretty impressive a lot of people think though that the home builders have peak earnings too year to date the shares are up 37 percent and they've been kind of volatile they've had a pullback off their highs starting to maybe see a bounce back a little bit here. The home builders are cyclical. They kind of take a break at late summer into fall and even into the winter. But by then the home builders are start to give some guidance about what they see the spring home buying season to look like. And that's when you normally see the home building stocks kind of take off again. So we'll see if some cyclical nature has returned to the home builders. Uh, they haven't been during the pandemic, but they may be turning back to their normal patterns. DR Horton does pay a dividend, but it's yielding just 0.9% right here. So not even a quite a 1% yield, but you are getting something. So that's DR Horton, DHI. Then we're going to switch over to one of the retail side of things. And this is Movado. M-O-V is the ticker. Yes, the watch company and jewelry they've been struggling for years because the word a couple years ago was millennials won't want watches but then they have wanted them and not just digital watches they even want the old-fashioned kind it turns out um but still the watch companies have been struggling a bit uh so i took a look at Movado's earnings. Now, we don't have any analyst coverage on it anymore on Zax.com, so that's a little disappointing. So a lot of the analysts have even, even uh, dropped coverage here and gotten out. So that tells you how to favor it is, right? So fiscal 2020, they made $1.57. Fiscal 2021, last year's pandemic year, just $0.91. Cents. But the next fiscal year, 2022, expected to make $2.54, up a up 179, 179%. So earnings are still to come for the last quarter. We haven't heard from them yet, coming at the end of August, 2021. So if you're listening to this in September or anytime later, Movado has reported. Now they don't just have Movado watches. They also own Olivia Burton and a couple other brands on their own. And they also do license deals with Coach, Tommy Hilfiger, Hugo Boss, and a couple others. So um, what did happen in their prior quarter that we know? So demand for watches and jewelry did grow in the first quarter due to digital marketing and their e-commerce site. So they finally got into social media marketing and some of these other kind of hot, trendy marketing areas, and that is starting to pay off. They have reduced their retail footprint, I believe, but um, still digital is the place to go. And their own e-commerce site on Movado.com has seen big gains. So this is kind of the one where you have to really bet on the brands. And um, I'm not sure what or if this turnaround is going to succeed. P is just 12 right here, but if you're interested, you may want to check out what's going to happen for the next earnings call and listen in on that conference call to really see if the turnaround is in the making here. Because like I said, watches and even on the jewelry side, both with Movado and Fossil, 
have struggled a bit here over the last like five years or so. So um, this is clearly an out of favor area. So keep that in mind, Movado, MOV. And then our fifth stock is one that doesn't have much coverage either, Nozex rank because little coverage, and it's Pet Med Express, ticker P-E-T-S. So they're America's pet pharmacy, in case you didn't know. If you don't have any pets, you might not know. They have a market cap of just 573 million, so they are still a small cap. Now they said in their last quarterly report that second quarter was flat uh, compared to 2019. It was under last year's pandemic quarter 2020 because they're an online pharmacy. So when everything shut down and you couldn't go to your vet, you just went online and ordered any kind of things you needed from the pharmacy. So 2020, they saw everything soar and now 2021 it's coming back down to earth. So they did say, I took a look at what they said on the earnings call and they said on the reopen, they spent more on ads, but they were less effective. Um, so they didn't gain as many new customers here in 2021 based on their advertising marketing, their online digital marketing. Also, uh, customers started going back to their vets. So the vets offices reopened, they could go back and they felt safe going back. So that was a hit on business because a lot of people buy whatever products they need directly from the vet themselves. So they didn't have to go online and get it at the pet pharmacy online. So keep those things in mind. Um, it has hit the stock year to date. The shares are down 12%. And um, over the last year, they're still down 14.5%. And this stock has gotten some big spikes here in 2021. Like if you take a look at the chart, it may seem like maybe there was a malfunction or like some kind of flash crash or something. But I feel like that must be the Reddit you know, the AMC trader types all in um, in the stock a couple times this year. So keep that in mind, but they don't seem to be in it right now as the shares are down 12%, as I said. Now I took a look at earnings and because we don't have any analyst coverage now, it's hard to get any earnings, but fiscal 2020, they made 128, fiscal 2021, 153, hard I couldn't tell for this year what they're gonna make, but they only made 26 cents in the first quarter, which is under what they've made the last couple of years for that quarter. So looks like earnings are gonna be on the decline here, but they feel good enough about their financial situation that last quarter they actually raised their dividend. So that's actually yielding 4.3% now. So that's quite a big dividend. That's more than some banks for PetMed Express. So they're trying to pay you to stick around. They have 111 million in cash and no debt. So keep these things in mind again, but no rank because nobody's really covering it, which I'm kind of surprised, but nobody is, but that's PetMed Express. P-E-T-S is the ticker. Um, and when I'm saying no analyst coverage, that's just on Zach's. There are probably analysts on it, listening on those conference calls to see with the small cap companies like this, there usually are like one or two on them. Um, 
even if we don't have his X rank. So I hope so. Otherwise, um, we're not really going to find out much what's going on behind the scenes, right? So um, keep that in mind. That chart is a little bit crazy, like I said, because it looked like some Reddit traders were in there. So these are some interesting stocks, um, as you might expect, because it's Ben Graham, and he's going to try to find ones with good cash flow and, um, you know, cheap or being ignored. These certainly are, for the most part, maybe except for the home builder, stocks that have kind of been tossed away um, to some extent, um, maybe except Nintendo, that one not so much except for this year. But these are typical value stacks. So this is an interesting screen. I'm going to have to check in on the Ben Graham guru screen more often. But as we go along and do some more podcasts on the intelligent investor again, um, I'll probably be running that Buffett guru screen because I'm kind of intrigued about what that one is going to turn up. Um, wouldn't it just be similar to what Ben Graham's screen is since he did learn from Ben Graham? Um, I don't know, but I'm going to go. I'm going to go find out for a future episode. So let me recap the, the tickers here. So in case you missed any of them, we had Nintendo, NTDOI. We had, um, whoa, I got to get all the names correct, Broadmark Realty, BRMK. We had DR Horton, DHI. We had Movado, MOV. And then we had PetMed Express. P-E-T-S. And as always, be sure to subscribe to get us somewhere because you don't want to miss our future episodes of The Intelligent Investor um, and everything else going on with value. Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett, uh, the Berkshire Hathaway, new um, buys and sells are out. So we're going to cover that too. But you want to be sure to subscribe to get it all. Get us on Apple Podcasts. Get us on Spotify. Get us on Amazon Music. Get us somewhere. But I'll see you again next time with some more value stacks. This material is being provided for informational purposes only, and nothing herein constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. Do not act or rely upon the information and advice given in this podcast without seeking the services of competent and professional legal, tax, or accounting counsel. Publication and distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and the information contained herein does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No recommendation or advice is being given as to whether any investment or strategy is suitable for a particular investor. It should not be assumed that any investments in securities, companies, sectors, or markets identify described were or will be profitable. All information is current as of the date herein and is subject to change without notice. Any views or opinions expressed may not reflect those of Zach's investment research as a whole.